Welcome to Stuck at Home with Cliff Dorfman and Jason Smith. Here are your hosts, Jason Smith and Cliff Dorfman. Huzzah! Welcome to a new episode of Stuck at Home with, uh, you know, me, Cliff Dorfman, and uh, this, and me. this, wait, this guy. The state representative from Nevada. <laughs> Jason Smith. Um, we're the, the show that, uh, that, uh, that watches a bunch of shows and uh, likes to tell you about those shows. Yeah, and plus, you know, we like to download you on the streaming wars, what to stream and where to stream it. Well, Cliff Dorfman, I know you know what I've been watching. What you've been watching? You see, I, I'm watching totally different things than the rest of the universe. I watched Truth Seekers. I watched, but I watched again. You know what I watched again? You know, because we both watched it. Magnolia? Yeah. One of the right. perfect film. All right, so I haven't watched that movie since 1999. We'll get into it in a little bit, but I've got to say Perfect this. I've been, film. I've been watching a lot of shit lately that mm. has the word Nevada in it, right? It's CNN has Nevada. I haven't heard the name Nevada so many times in my life. <laughs> then I watched Magnolia, okay? Now, PTA, Paul Thomas Anderson, he has... Genius. He, he, he directed a movie, one of the first movies that I ever remember really being set in Reno, Heart 8, Right. All in Reno, all in Reno. His first film. This guy and then was, I, I go to no turn one knew on him. Yeah, it was great. And it, first film. John C. And then I, and like ever since that movie, it's like, I want the hard eights. Like, I can't play craps without doing hard eights every time. Thank you. <laughs> well, Paul John Thomas C. Anderson. Riley, come on. Dylan, Dylan, uh, Dylan was there. Dylan was a part of all that stuff. He met PTA. Was he nice think, or was he like, was he insane? We dated the same girl. I think girl he was nice. Long. That was back when he was, it was when he was first starting out, too. This was first movie, well, right? She dated like, us, really. Yeah. Sorry. Um, but um, I'm, I, I put on, I put on Magnolia and the first scene is the whole thing about uh, a coincidence, right? And you're talking about coincidence. And so the second story comes from, from Reno, Nevada. He says, Nevada, he did a whole movie, but it's from Nevada. And it talks about, uh, and it's Patton Oswald sitting, uh, doing, uh, you know, as a, as a, as a cra- as a blackjack dealer in r- the John Esquagas nugget, which Creepy is a, eight. which is a completely real, Casino in Reno, Nevada, and you he says the bottle like up, eight right? times. What you knew, you knew him growing up, right? Uh, well, yeah, he used to come like we used to get like free stuff from there, and not Paul Thomas Anderson. Here. Sorry, the casino not, no from John Esquaga <laughs> and his family, and there they had elephants, and that's where the rib cook-off is, and Ooh. it's like a central part of Sparks. But they do good. He he did a great job, and they talk about the Reno Gazette, which is the name of the paper that's in Reno. All that stuff's real. Can't say Nevada, and then I turn on the news and. We're waiting on the, the results from Nevada, and it's Nevada, 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 Nevada. I'm going crazy. Jason Smythe. Yes. I'm now going to be Clive Dorfman. Clive Dorfman. Yeah, because yeah, as long as everyone's going to say Nevada. Nevada. Yeah. I mean, it's probably the way that it looks like it should be said. It does look like it, but I, listen, you've taught me, so it's Nevada. It just Very sounds weird. Name. It sounds like you're a New Yorker, like, hey, you're going to Nevada? Yeah, Nevada. Nevada. Yeah, it sounds weird. Nevada. Nevada. Who, Nevada. Who, who is, uh, let me just ask you a question. Who, and, and I don't think you can answer it, but I like asking ones like that. Who, who has determined that it's Nevada? Nevadans determined it was Nevada. <laughs> is, there, is there a place that this is official? Like, that it's yeah, Nevada? Nevada. Everybody in Nevada calls it Nevada. Cli- I like Clive Dorfman. It sounds like you make like Jewish horror films. Clive Dorfman. <laughs> Clive Dorfman. You know what? That's the best idea she's ever, Macy Pitt's ever had. <laughs> Clive Dorfman. All right. Dorfman. All right. But wait. But I'm Nevada. really excited. Yeah. You know, but I got back into this movie um, and I got to say this, like when I saw it, when I was, you know, and we'll, we'll dig into this more. But when I saw this, when I was, uh, you know, 22 years old 
I, it felt like a lot and I didn't really understand it because I just come off boogie nights mm-hmm. and like I expected something a little more, you know, different. And I was like, wasn't ready for it. But now that I saw it again, I was like, Jesus, this thing was intense. There's a lot going on. I still agree with Macy. What the fuck are the frogs all about? But oh, come on. we'll, we'll get, get into, into this. We'll get into this. Uh, we have we have a few seconds before we bring on our guests. I just want everybody. It's We don't do the politic thing, but let's just everybody. Jason, you too. Take a collective breath with me. Just in through the nose, out through the mouth. One more. Come on, Jason. My microphone smells like my breath. Everyone needs a good couple of breaths right now. Pay attention to your breathing. And Jason, is it time? It's time. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, so without any further ado, because I can't wait to get into meta stuff about PTA, ladies and gentlemen, his new book is called Paul Thomas Anderson Masterworks. Ladies and gentlemen, Adam Naiman. Did I get it right? Adam Naiman? Yeah. Good, gentlemen. Is it Naiman or Naiman? Naiman, and it's, uh, I'm from Toronto, but we call it Toronto. Toronto. Like Nevada. Similar. <laughs> no, no, listen, we're all going to go through sayings today. Welcome to the show, and thank you for being here from Toronto. Is it cold there? Or uh, you know, actually, it's very temperate today to, like counter your, to counter your American stereotypes. We're like, okay today. That's fantastic. I love that. Um, so, congratulations on the book. Thank you. And uh, let's talk about, first of all, just why do you write this thing? I mean, listen, I love PTA uh, more than the next guy, but what makes, what compels you, you know, coming off of your first book? Well, I'd written a book recently for Abrams on the Coen brothers, who are filmmakers who I'm really interested in and who I like a lot. And uh, I think Anderson was sort of a logical follow-up from that. Uh, Not as many films, a different arc and shape his career. And I was really interested in authorship and control in American movies, the ways that he mm-hmm. kind of seems to, 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 to represent major control, major kind of uh, authorship in all of his work. And, uh, you know, these are movies that made a big impression on me, especially the more recent group. I tried to do the book in an interesting order where I actually write about the movies based on when they're set in American history as opposed to when they were made. So instead of the narrative of this kind of hot shit young filmmaker getting better and better and maturing into a master, it's more about this history of America, particularly through the state of California and through these themes of entrepreneurship and manifest destiny and all the striving, seeking characters that he tends to make movies around. But there's so many ways in and out of these movies. You know, it's interesting because in, in, in reading your book, it's like this idea that you chose to tell the narrative. And I wonder if PTA is going to give you a ring and be like, you know, I didn't realize this is what I was doing. But it's really weird how you can look at it and see it's like if there be blood and where that starts with Daniel Day-Lewis and moving forward. And then is it a, are they falters? Or are they step backs when we finally get to hard eight? It's just it's fascinating to me. So go ahead. Well, and if anything, I hope he appreciates the through line in this very serious book of dick jokes. Because starting with the title of Heart Eight, which he didn't want, 
right? But the subtext is in the movie. You, you, from Heartache to the House of Woodcock and Phantom Thread, this idea of masculine, not just sexuality, but this idea of masculinity through uh, through that kind of uh, that kind of humor. I mean, Magnolia is a movie that pivots on Tom Cruise screaming "Respect the cock" about a hundred times, and I'm not being silly when I talk about it. It's no, a you're not. major, major theme, a major piece of subtext in his work. He's so good at depicting kind of masculine insecurity and a kind of toxic maleness as well before it was named as such within the discourse. Yes. And that runs through all the movies as well. You look at a movie like The Master, it's explicitly what it's about. It just also is about Scientology. And it also is about psychotherapy. His movies are, like I say, so many ins and outs to all of them. Well, that and Inherit Vice are my two least favorites. Oh, interesting. Uh, out of all of them. I know it's weird, right? But The Master, I came out of, and I was like, uh, you know, I think I need to go see another movie right away. So that's not the last thing I saw. And and I feel like I betrayed PTA because I'm such a rabid fan. You know, I'm someone who will call all the numbers that he leaves and leave a voicemail message each time. Right. Well, I don't think you're betraying anybody. I think that there's an interesting split in his career. And what I try out on you and ask you what you think, because it's in the book, is there's a rerouting that happens after Magnolia. Magnolia is a movie made by a guy who's not quite 30, who has final cut on a three-hour holiday film. He's trying to get it all in there. And that's what's exhilarating about that movie. It's also what I think some people found enervating at the time. There's a different kind of confidence and spaciousness to the movies after. Punch Drunk Love is the transition, where now instead of a big ensemble, he's focusing on an individual. And then when you get to There Will Be Blood, and especially The Master, the way the films are edited is so open. It's so oblique. It's so strange. He's definitely the same guy who made Boogie Nights, but they're very different feeling movies. I happen to have more of a fondness for the later ones, but I think, you know, a, a case can be made for some of that energy and clarity in the first few. So I'll try to give each movie its due. And one of the ways to do that is to look at the way people wrote about them all negatively. If you read this book, whether I'm positive or negative, it's all contextualized in what other critics have said. Because as popular as he is, he's a polarizing filmmaker. A lot of right. dissent on Paul Thomas Anderson. You know, and it's important right. to note that. Well, no, I, I agree with you. I mean, listen, really? this is a I, I've jump never, in, I just <laughs> curious about that. I, I, I understand that to a point, but I, I, I mean, I feel like things like There Will Be Blood, especially, and The Master have been pretty much unanimously... They've been, they've been praised, which means that there's a huge amount of dissent towards that praise, depending on what people are invested in. Yeah. And part of what this book is about, too, is about the way criticism is written. Because I think there's a generation, I don't know if you want to call it Gen X or if you want to call it the sort of post-Tarantino moment in the 90s. They're trying to claim a great director for this age. And for some people, someone like Tarantino fits the bill. For some people, uh, Barry Jenkins or Michael Bay. It depends on your taste. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk to the person who's like, you know what? Did he just Rock. say Michael Bay? Call, 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 you know, man, call France. They're all over there. They and Jerry Lewis. For a certain kind of cinephile, he's it. And when he's it, that's where you get dissent and where you get criticism as well. Right. Well, like I said about The Master, whereas I love all his movies, you know what I mean? The Master, I just hated. And now I'm going to have to go back after reading your book and, and watch it again. But I think we see something, as you're talking about, into this guy who at almost 30 years old, barely, had full final cut on this movie that he, even in many interviews, said he believes is a perfect movie. Like, he doesn't think he's going to make a better film. 
Yeah, that was his big thing in 1999. He said, I'll never make a better film. The line that I like, and when mm -hmm. I say I like it, I think it's a very revealing line of what's extraordinary about Magnolia and also, again, what's troubling. He says, I made this movie without a delete button. And that's a really amazing thing for a filmmaker to say. It's not that the movie isn't shaped and that there's not skill in it. There's a long interview in my book with Dylan Titchener, who's edited certain of Anderson's films, and him talking about how they cut Magnolia together to have these nine stories subdividing in narrative space. It's really amazing. But there's also something to be said, like, when do you leave stuff out? Can every character have a speech? I mean, you want to use the porn analogy from Boogie Nights and even from Magnolia, which is a sleazy movie. If everything is a money shot, right, where's the currency? And I think that that's the question with Magnolia is it is just climax after climax after climax. And if you're on the wavelength, it's an amazing feeling. Other people feel very beaten up and beaten down by that movie. And I'm interested to talk about both things being true. Well, let's talk about the frogs first, because everybody who's an amateur Anderson, amateur PTAs, everyone wants to understand the frogs. So why don't we just get that out of the way and then we can get more meta? He was reading about a guy named Charles Fort who wrote about these unnatural or these strange, actually natural phenomenon. And uh, he claims he didn't know that there was a passage in the Bible about frogs until the actor Henry Gibson gave him a Bible, like when they were largely shot the movie. So a lot of that Exodus 8-2 stuff, all the little Easter eggs throughout the film, including I think Anderson himself was holding an 8-2 sign in the audience for what do kids know. That was all kind of seeded in a little bit after the fact and, and in the editing. But it's a whatever the frogs mean, you got to admit, a movie coming out on the eve of Y2K with all that imminent millennial anxiety, and that sense of what is coming, what is going to happen. The frogs are this wonderfully open symbol of a lot. Rebirth, cleansing, punishment, coincidence, uh, arbitrariness. But I remember when that movie came out, everyone was thinking, God, we're on the verge of something. And the frogs are one way to represent that, whatever they mean or whatever they don't mean. All right. I mean, listen, you know, if you, I've looked it up, it, it is actual natural phenomenon that has sure. allegedly happened. I mean, you know, if you believe the internet, <laughs> and, uh, it, it's interesting that he chose it frogs all the time by me. Like I, just well, listen, two days ago, it was it's a Florida frogs. thing, Jason. No, I was just, I, I, I just right now it's raining frogs outside my house. He, uh, he said in an interview, you can tell somewhere in the book, I quote him. He said, uh, you can tell about a society by the health or the way they treat their frogs. <laughs> which may or may not be a kind of silly statement or may or may not be a joke. Right. But uh, he, but again, when you're saying they're a real thing that happened, that's what I mean. He looked at Charles Fort, who'd written about it as real, and then he realized it's in the Bible. And somewhere between that scientific fact and that spiritual sort of archetype, uh, he puts it into his film. Yeah, but wouldn't you? Wouldn't it be safe to say that you know it would be fine if oh, oh well, it's baptism by fire. You know, if it's fire or water, as in a classic literary sense, everyone would go, sure, that works. But he just decided to put frogs there. That's all he did, and that's what makes him great. Yeah, he. he it's a it's a big swing, and one of the things yeah. I talk about <laughs> in the book too is this is a filmmaker who's not afraid for the big swing, the the hail mary, you know, the deep three. He he has that <laughs> in his filmmaking vocabulary. The master is a good example. I'd say I don't want to spoil the film, but it's a hard movie to spoil because the narrative is so elliptical. But if you've seen the movie, that giant confrontation with Joaquin Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman toward the end, where Philip Seymour Hoffman starts singing Slow Boat to China, that's a 
complete non sequitur, especially as the ending for a movie. And yet, as I try and write in the book, it's so coded in to me, to all the other things that the movie has been about, that one person can watch that ending and be like, where the hell is he pulling this from? And for other people, it feels uh, inevitable. Like the movie could not have gone anywhere else. And I love how kind of intuitive and uh, I, I, I love how intuitive his storytelling has become. He's just about as confident a filmmaker as we have working today. There is just no hesitation. He goes for it. Oh, listen, no one's arguing that. I think we, uh, would you agree with this? That we saw, like you talked about the two different filmmakers, right? The hot shit filmmaker who comes on does Boogie Nights. Because I remember when that movie came out, Boogie Nights. Not came out, I mean like in town. Where the script was out, New Line was doing it, and every actor in town, this is when I still thought I could act, every actor in town was like, oh my God, we have to get that, that role. And then Wahlberg just walked away with it. And it was one of those things, the town was watching that movie and that script so closely. And coming from Heart 8, Heart 8, no one even knew. So, well, yeah. oh, wait, wait, let me finish this though. So, yeah. so the reason I bring that up is because he went from that guy who was this hot, like you said, hot shit filmmaker. And then we see in uh, There Will Be Blood, we see this where he starts utilizing the golden ratio in his framing. <laughs> right. I mean, so where did this divide happen and, and how did he manage to pull this together and make it all one Paul Thomas Anderson? He said something about punch drunk love that is not true, but is very interesting where he said, I wanted to make a movie that was referenceless. Now, Punch Drunk Love has a bunch of references in it. He uses Shelley Duvall singing, uh, he needs me from Popeye. Uh, uh, Emily Watson wears a dress from Vincent Minnelli's The Bandwagon. But in terms of not borrowing from Scorsese or Altman, but finding a visual style and a language that's his, that's the transition movie. And then on There Will Be Blood, he did something new, which is this severe minimalist size. When you talk about the ratio, you're exactly right. There's something about the size of the image, the size of the frame, the severity of the style. He hooks up with Johnny Greenwood. And the small spirals he makes. In the, in the film that you don't see in his other movies. Yeah, absolutely. The, 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 there's a size to There Will Be Blood, but there's also these little pockets of subtlety. And also, again, I use this word, but this ellipticism where not everything is filled in in terms of connective tissue. Someone asked me, well, what was the, what's your favorite moment in an Anderson film? And I'll always give the same answer. It's in There Will Be Blood, and I write about it in the introduction to the book where you have two children on a porch in 1912. And to this point in the film, we have been in real time. And not just in real time, big, intense, heavy chunks of real time. Like there is no escape from Daniel Plainview and his obsession. When these two little kids playing, they step off the porch and it cuts to them being married 15 years later. And the sense of loss and time passing and what have we missed after this incredibly focused attention for two hours. I remember sitting in the theater thinking, this is a filmmaker I like, but can he really surprise me? And my whole body, <laughs> hair just kind of going up on end because it's a Kubrick move. It's the bone to the spaceship in 2001, but hmm. it's an intimate family context and this time is just gone. I will always think that as a single cut, the mastery and the imaginativeness of that filmmaking is off the charts. Well, don't you think that he has maintained a certain um, thematic uh, consistency with this idea of being setting all his worlds, these backdrops of uh, immediate and very almost violent transition? Like even in Boogie Nights, we see it go from, you know, film to video. Yep. You know, I mean, it's oil, you know, there's no oil to now he's a rich guy. It's like everything is the backdrop of this 
ultra-changing world. It's the Industrial Revolution, etc. I mean, is there a consistency you see? No, I think you're right. And I think that there will be blood, the master, and inherent vice are so legible as a trilogy about California in the 20th century where what do you miss in There Will Be Blood? Well, it skips over World War One. Where does the master pick up? right at the end of World War II with this broken veteran. And Inherent Vice is like a home front slice of Vietnam where Joaquin Phoenix is investigating this East Asian conspiracy, the Golden Fang. He absolutely does these hinge moments. And that's why I I like your reading because that's kind of one of the ways that Magnolia makes sense, which is it's what lies on the other side of this big change. But that's much more direct in Boogie Nights where literally the way the 1980s started with a guy blowing his brains out. You know, I mean, the <laughs> 70s are cool and everybody's sleeping with each other and having fun. And then the 80s is awful. It's video, it's mixtapes, it's listening to Night Ranger do Sister Christian like it sucks. And I think that Boogie Nights is one of the, the best, great, one of the great anti-80s movies. Mm. You know, it's like as soon as they start doing coke, it's a disaster. And uh, at yes. last, that that scene with Alfred Molina as Rahad Jackson, where the, the action breaks out, oh. I love that scene because at that time, people might have said, oh, this guy wants to be Tarantino. It's violence. It's ironic. Pop music. I mean, that was probably the closest they ever were. But I have never seen Tarantino sustain something quite like that scene with the firecrackers going off in in the background. That's like coiled tension and release on another level. Well, listen, Tarantino, whom I love, he glorifies male toxicity. That's what he does. Paul Thomas Anderson makes latent films that are, uh, he is so comfortable in his own skin, at least it would appear, right, with gender and, you know, w- uh, sexuality that he will approach. I mean, that scene in Boogie Nights where Mark is like, do you want me to take it out? You want, I mean, like, you know, this is a very deep scene that you could never see Quentin do. And he no, would never I, do. No, and I don't know if Tarantino could film something like the scene in Boogie Nights where Philip Seymour Hoffman is Scotty, the failed pass that he makes at... Oh. Outside the uh, Corvette. And, you know, in a way, Hoffman, who, of course, passed away far too young, I mean, he's obviously like one of the ultimate Anderson actors, but there's also a really interesting arc in the way Hoffman act, acts for him. If you look at him in Heart Eight, very edge of the movie, Scotty and Boogie Nights closer to the center, uh, Phil in uh, Magnolia kind of closer to the center, Punch Drunk Love, where he is hilarious as the mattress man, Dean, <laughs> closer <laughs> yes. to the center. You know, and by the time he makes the master, he's kind of full center of the film as this charismatic kind of Orson Welles character. I mean, Anderson is known for being great with actors and the using actors over and over again. But no two performances by any actor who's been in multiple films of his is alike. And the diversity of Hoffman's acting is a pretty good way of describing how many different kinds of performances he can get, not just from any actor, but just from the same guy. I mean, we want to go back to Hard Eight. If you remember Hoffman in that movie, that is the most repellent, obvious character like ever. And then in Magnolia, he's just this like channeling empathy to the point where it's like dripping off the screen. I mean, I'm I'm kind of now talking about Hoffman more than Anderson, but well, no, but I think they are they are excuse me they are interchangeable. You know, and I think that that's, the, you know, and so same with John C. Riley. Yeah. You know, there's a reason that it's not like the Oliver Stone idea of I'm using a troupe of actors and it's egoistic. This is about he's getting these performances because he knows their range. I mean, you know, I don't think Adam Sandler ever does Uncut Gems if he doesn't do Punch Drunk Love. No, and if you if you notice, the end of forward for the book, and I was very happy that they did, did notice. written by, by the Thafties, who are not 
pure inheritors of Anderson. They're doing their own thing, and I like their movies a lot. Love but they it. have some of his, in a way, his lack of irony. And that's one of the differences between Anderson and, and Tarantino. Not that everything has to be a contest, and it's not. But, kind I, of think is. That, but I think that Anderson, <laughs> in his way, is one of the more open-hearted American filmmakers. He's funny, and sometimes he's funny in a very goofy way. I mean, he loves SNL, and, and he loved Adam Sandler because he loved Big Daddy and Happy Gilmore and all that. But he doesn't have the veil of irony and cynicism that that Tarantino does. He's coming from a much more kind of, I think, as, as you said, uh, he, he's you know secure in his own skin and comfortable enough in his own skin that he can make these movies about insecurity. You think about that Tom Cruise character in Magnolia. What talk about a character whose time has come culturally? Couldn't even make that today, by the way. Well, you couldn't make it today, but you don't have to because you watch <laughs> Magnolia today. And like I say, that Tom Cruise character gets at a lot of things. I'm not trying to, I hate zeitgeist surfy film criticism when it's really opportunistic. Mm. But you look at 99 with Fight Club 2, where Pitt plays this charismatic, you know, savior for all these lost, angry guys. And people at the time said, I don't believe either of these movies. And it's like, well, you know. Give it a minute. Give it a minute, yeah. <laughs> right. So now he makes the transition we we see it in you know I, I, for me i think it's there will be blood i think that you you said the the transition film was punch drunk right? start in punch drunk love but there will be blood right. is the big evidence of it so I, I agree with where you're going right so now let's talk for a minute about uh phantom sure uh, Fan, yeah okay so so let me ask you your like tell our uh, viewers and listeners your take on phantom threat I think Phantom Thread's really interesting because it puts a female subjectivity at the center of a film for the first time. You can very easily be mistaken for thinking this is a movie about an obsessive, fastidious uh, fashion designer, but it's not. It opens with her talking about him, and it's about the way that she sees him, and it's part of what seduces her, but also, I think, part of what she judges. And I think it's a film about a character who's much less, actually, of a control freak than he thinks. Without spoiling the movie, he, it's kind of freaky how he wants to be controlled. It's a funny movie about monogamy, which is all about power and all about manipulation, but also, in its way, quite domestic and sweet. Um, and the performance by Vicky Krieps, who I interview in the book, is one of my favorite performances in any of Anderson's films because she was not a heavyweight actor when she's cast. No, she's by the way, do you talk about you talk about this, right? Yeah, and she was quite obscure, Luxembourgian actress, tremendously talented. He'd actually seen her in a movie that Philip Seymour Hoffman made called *The Most Wanted Man*. And uh, this is talk about people wanting parts. I mean, this is the female lead in what is basically a two-hander, opposite Daniel Day Lewis. Right, and she kills it. I mean, kills it for me is an understatement. She kills it. And we finally have, not that this is what his work has to work towards, but we finally have, instead of just a movie about male desire, which I think The Master is, or Inherent Vice, which is literally about wanting an ex-girlfriend to come back to you, you have a movie where a female character is center of the story, center of the movie's consciousness, has a certain amount of power over the way the movie's told and also what happens in the story. And to me, it's a good look for him. There's a lot of other great things about the movie. It's beautiful. The way it's made is very mesmerizing. It's got, uh, you know, wonderful references, including the movies like Rebecca by Alfred Hitchcock, but it's the centrality of her role and her performance that I think is really special. Well, I mean, and also let's, you know, let's for a second talk about, you know, the sister and the manipulation and control right. that she's, you know, keeping over his life. And then it's almost like, a, you know, it's a, it's a, it, to me, I always thought, and tell me what you think. Uh, PTA was saying, I just want to escape this role. 
<laughs> I just want to escape this role and just like make weird clown films somewhere in France. Yeah, well, and although it's interesting because what he's come back to now is he's shooting a coming of supposedly a coming of age film back in the in the San Fernando Valley, and he's never really made a movie about adolescence before. Dirk right. Diggler and Boogie Nights, notwithstanding. Because that's all about not a boy, not yet a man, mm-hmm. right? He's never really made a movie about the, the the childhood side of that divide. But you know what I what I sense. Yeah, is, like I'm gonna interrupt. Like Soderbergh did with King of the Hill. Like Soderbergh did with King of the Hill, or like Linklater did with 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 Boyhood. I mean, the coming of age movie is like a rite of passage for mm-hmm. American filmmakers ever since Lucas does American Graffiti, <laughs> yep. right? Which is the great hundred percent great kind of soundtrack movie. But again, I think what's so exciting in a way about Phantom Thread is to see this, not just, I wouldn't call him an American filmmaker like Robert Altman, because he really is a narrow part of America. It's either Nevada or, you know, Los Angeles. Thank you. But it's so interesting to see him take on a British movie that has to do with British class and also aspects of Europe after World War II. Um, I think it's a kind of interesting stretch. And sometimes when you say a movie's a stretch, you're like, oh, yeah, that's a stretch. <laughs> what I mean is I think he he's pretty limber. I think he rises to that challenge of the material and makes a movie that's profoundly him but would not make a second of sense if it was American. You couldn't tell that same story mm. in some, like, remote, you know, you know, some, some, some remote house in the Hollywood Hills. It's very British, very mid-century. And I think filled with a love for a certain era of filmmaking uh, that is different than his usual influences. It's well, funny. Yeah, I, changing I have a, worlds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I have a quote. Well, although it is about the changing of worlds because the 60s are happening in Phantom Thread and Reynolds keeps saying how much he hates the word chic, right? <laughs> the same as the talk in Boogie Nights about how you yep. know, I just like seeing people fuck on screen. I'd rather see it on video than on than on film. When you talk about that idea of transition, I think you're absolutely right. I think that's one of the things that he's interested in and that I think he's very skilled at dramatizing. Yeah, and I think it really does set uh, the tone for kind of everything he does. I mean, even look at Adam Sandler. He's a guy, he transitioned into being a serious actor. No one took Adam serious as an actor. And the great thing about Punch Drunk Love is for all the things in it that are idiosyncratic and strange, the score, the color bars by Jeremy Blake, it's an Adam Sandler movie. And I'm not saying that as a joke. It's about an angry, pent-up, inarticulate man-child who is desperate for a girlfriend and kind of can't solve problems without punching somebody. It's like, oh yeah, that's Happy Gilmore. I mean, that's not meant to minimize the movie. No. It's to say that he found something in the persona and he interrogated it and, and excavated it in a way that I think is really, really smart. And I think when you watch Punch Drunk Love and when you watch Uncut Gems, I think Sandler has grown as an actor. It's not that he's not good in Punch Drunk Love, but I think you're right that that movie helps him access things that now it's not just his persona, it's his skill set. I love the performance in Uncut Gems. And it's it's not about comparing them, but I don't think Uncut Gems is possible. Yeah, but Punch Drunk Love and the boys, the the not the boys, the brothers, softies, Josh and Ben. I call them the boys. The, they're Josh the best. They, uh, so talented, by the way. Yeah, they're very talented. They, uh, you know, they say it in my intro that they saw him in that movie, and that's where the, that's where that whole Howard character comes from. Yeah, I mean, you know, how many things I've written that are, are PTA influenced. You know, I mean, they this guy is at the core of it all. What do you got, Jace? Nothing. Um, just getting ready to wrap it up. Um, but okay. I, 
Um, I was just curious. So we've talked a lot about a bunch of different movies. Favorites. What What's your favorite? Oh yeah. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna break your man's heart and say my favorite is the master. I knew you were gonna say the master. <laughs> Good. You should. Now my favorite is the master too. <laughs> and, and and yours is Magnolia. It it's a tie. It it really is a tie between Magnolia and There Will Be Blood. Right on. Yeah. It's 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 very hard for me. I can almost watch them back to back. You know what's telling is there's eight feature films here, and in half an hour we talked pretty much about all of them at one point or another in a detailed way. It's a good sign. That is really good. Yeah. Look, you you have me. Uh, you had me at uh, Masterworks. Uh, so right. you know, uh, I can't thank you enough for being here. Uh, again, the book Paul Thomas Anderson Masterworks by Adam Naiman. Jace, I I just want to thank you for being here. This has been a really great conversation, and thank you also because. Otherwise, I wouldn't. Um, Cliff has been trying to get me to watch Magnolia a bunch of times, and I keep refusing him. But right. since you were here, I did it, and I'm really grateful for that because I thank really, that, really enjoyed it. Yes, we can. <laughs> yes, we can. <laughs> All right, the perfect outro. Just thank you so keep much. Your Adam. Nevada, keep, keep your eye on Nevada, guys. Keep your eye on Nevada. Adam, name it, everybody. <laughs> All right, take it easy. That was great. I could talk about PTA for a long time. Oh, I know. I, I think he, I mean, that's what's really brilliant about these stories. I mean, there will be blood. I mean, I think the first time I saw that I couldn't, uh, I couldn't just like, I walked away from that just blown away. And and thinking about that being the same guy uh, that did Boogie Nights. Boogie Nights like, or Heart yeah. Yeah. But I like what Adam did in his book, how he took all the movies out of uh, narrative. And yeah. he said, yeah, and he said, okay, well, let's take it from chronological order. And it makes it a, a whole different way to look at all these films. And, and you know, now that he's done this, I kind of want to rewatch all his movies in that order. Yeah, I kind of do too. Well, I, I mean, and that's something I didn't necessarily think about, but you, you guys are absolutely right. The way that they explore all these things, it's about time always passes in these movies, right? There's, mm -hmm. there's, there's this passage, Magnolia excluded, obviously that's one crazy fucking day uh, yeah, it's <laughs> the best but the way that it kind of you know you kind of look at these things and, and these characters through it you know uh there will be blood is uh you know giant didn't didn't do the oil industry right. justice the way that this did no but right? i'll tell you that guy could have been a lot more comfortable daniel day lewis's character yeah if he had some meundies in those oil wells oh i mean do you like what's that great about like that segue? Is they i bet you they're still soft if they're just covered in blood oil or whatever Muck. if i'm gonna take a bowling pin to somebody's head i want my <laughs> bowling pin to be wrapped comfortably and sweetly in some sort of fabric that came from a beechwood tree that went from a pulp sustainable beechwood tree that went from pulp to yarn you know and that, that would have been the thing if you could figure Pulps out and there will be blood you know that's a that's a fossil fuel that's a that's a commodity that's not sustainable went from dirt to oil yeah, this, if you could do sustainable Beachwood, there will be blood would have been, there would have been roses, sunshine, and happy Johnsons. Yeah, no one would have been upset. Yeah. You wouldn't have had to kill anyone. Paul if, Dano would, everyone would have been alone. Take your Dirk Diggler and put it in some softies yeah, and they, fight some Kung Fu. You did it again. You did it again. <laughs> you brought the title of the thing we're doing into the MeUndies read. That's I mean, right. take your Dirk Diggler and wrap it in, or take your Roller Girl. Yeah, and wrap it in the most soft micromodal the, uh, technology that 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 just it, it makes it makes your Dirk Diggler and your Roller Girl just feel so good. Feel so and good. get the membership. Yeah, you know what? I will say this: every pair of MeUndies is your money shot. You don't need you don't need to worry about currency when you got you got that. Especially if you got that monthly plan. So go to MeUndies.com, <laughs> offer code stuck. 
It's MeUndies.com. Offer code stuck and yeah. uh, get stuck in some MeUndies. All right. <laughs> How do you like that? We paid the bills. We paid the bills. All, All right. right. And by the way, we believe in this. So I keep saying it, but if I didn't love it, I, we wouldn't do it. I'm going to say something personal, though, before okay. we go on, right? Can you tell that I got Botox? Nope. Look, now can you tell? I guess. Is this eye I going up weird? This eye feels like it's going up weirder. It hasn't all settled yet. But I get it from this guy, August, who does, uh, he doesn't give me a fucking discount or anything, but he does like so many of these people you see on TV, like so oh. many. And uh, I had so no good. idea. No, no But idea. it hasn't settled all yet because I just got it on Saturday. I, I can't tell, but I also. Look at that. They go up. There's no. There's no yeah, they there's still, I still have a motion range. You do have emotions. There's emotional emotion. range. I your got your eyebrows emotions. But I just like being transparent. I don't want to like get Botox and then be like, hey, are those lines that used to be in my forehead? They just disappeared. No, I went and got needle shots in my head. Needle shots. It was pretty interesting. I've done needle shots before, but it was like just a liquid filled with like a Jägermeister and they just <laughs> shot into my mouth. It was one of those uh, liquid needles. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. One of those liquid needles. All right. So we got some news. What do we got? I love this. So just a little bit of news today, because obviously most everything is taken up by something else. Uh, Christopher Nolan today, I've been asking you about this a lot, mm -hmm. and and I'm still going to keep going. I'm going to keep banging on this until everybody uh. agrees with me. I think Christopher Nolan is an anti-masker. I don't think he believes in COVID. Um, Why do you think that? So Christopher Nolan said, yeah, he was very happy with how Tenet, Tenet did. But he thinks that now other movies, because it didn't do as fantastically as everybody would hope, he thinks that other movie theaters are using it as an excuse to get out of the game instead of rebuilding their business. Um, I don't even. So how does that have to do with masks? So he because he thinks because he wants more movies to go to the theaters right now, and he says that no one thing seems to think that studios are being lazy, just sitting on their movies and using the pandemic as an excuse to avoid getting in the game and adapting or rebuilding their business. To which I would reply, isn't getting everything on streaming and figuring out this new model actually what they're doing? Um, which makes me think that this is a very myopic thing that Martin Christopher Nolan's doing. And I, I don't want to harp on him because it's not like... No, but how did you break it down to masks? Well, he wants people still going to theaters. Like right now. Like he's still saying like he, is, he's, he says he's happy with the way this movie goes. Is that what he's saying? Yeah, he's happy the way his movie goes. He wants goes. theaters to open today. Yes, he still wants to, and he thinks that people are using the coronavirus as an excuse to not adjust their business, which I would say is they are trying to do the business, but there are people like Christopher Nolan saying, no, I'm not releasing my movie anywhere but on the theater. I have thoughts about this. Okay, I, that's why I want to hear. Yeah, no, no, but I wanted you to finish your thoughts because they're all really good and they're okay. sparking shit. So right. are you done? I'm done. Are you sure? Because I'm... Well, I can go, I'll, I'll have more. Don't get me wrong. Okay, so, so, okay. so what's gotten sparked by what you said is a couple of things. The first thing is let's let's break it down the things you, that were said the first thing is this you do see a lot of businesses using covid as an excuse that doesn't mean it's not covid it doesn't mean everyone shouldn't be wearing masks it, it, don't get anything i'm saying twisted prerequisite uh, precursor everything i'm saying is said with wear a mask S uh, safely distance do everything they're telling us to do okay that being said you see it a lot especially in the um uh, one percenter businesses <laughs> Jason just put up Cliff as an anti-masker question mark I wonder if you were doing like the Fox News version would be like I want some say some say Cliff Dorfman is an anti-masker some say <laughs> so okay <laughs> but what I am I am not I am a pro-masker let's just be very clear okay if you don't wear a mask you're an ass okay that's that's it there's no 
inside the Taco Bell. I didn't do that pre-COVID. Okay, let's not get that twisted either. Okay, so what I think is this. I think that, that you're seeing it like, for example, the Four Seasons in Beverly Hills, they could bring back more. They're using a smaller staff, a skeleton crew. They're blaming it on COVID. They're not paying their higher payroll. They're shittier service. They're they're sending up room service in plastic bins, you know, when, when it's like, oh, well, they're using a lot of it as an excuse to cut their costs and make money. This is definitely happening. Now, do I think that that has anything to do with the seriousness of COVID? First of all, no. Do I think it has anything to do with what Chris Nolan's talking about? No. I think Chris Nolan is talking about an excuse as to why he made a shitty movie. And he wants to blame every other person in the world except himself for making just a crappy movie. Just a piece of garbage. I mean, again, I can't say it so flippantly because I should ever make a movie that bad. I should ever be so fortunate, you know, to make a movie that bad. Yeah, really, yeah, that I kind should. Of money. I'm not you hating. To, you have to get a lot of places. That's you gotta. You have water, yeah. that's that Waterworld money. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yo, you know, people still haven't forgotten about Waterworld. All right, <laughs> Costner's still apologizing. You know, he's well, like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm just gonna do westerns where there's only land. Yeah, the, that. Well, that's why. Um, well, Titanic almost. That people were afraid that that was gonna fail simply because of Waterworld. Right, because water. <laughs> <laughs> you know, rip, rip, rip. yeah. So I think that he's just, you know, this is his uh, egoistic attempt to uh, blame others. You know, this is what we see in uh, uh, narcissists a lot. You know, they blame, they do mental gymnastics, mm -hmm. and they figure out like, oh, the studios are doing it as an excuse. Let's blame the studios. They're the big corporate bad guys, and they're not wonderful. But I mean, you know, listen, they didn't make Tenant Man. They just agreed to give you money, which what they're still kicking themselves for. What it reads to me as a little bit is. Uh -huh. Because where it did well is overseas, where it's like, let's let's create this weird overseas business where movies now are all, in, like, they're so international that they don't even stop in America. I think it is part of what it is. And another part of it, and I want to just, you know, get on this a little bit, is if you think about it, even with when you talk about the the hotels or whatever, profit margins are so razor thin right now that you have to adjust the model to something to make this work. I could, like... I would do movies all the time the way you and I went and saw Tenet, yes. as long as it wasn't Tenet. If there was a way to do that in a, in a in a slightly more sustainable way for mm -hmm. for theaters, I would make that a thing. But you don't have there's, but that would be the only like basically that's what you have to do. You have to have people personally renting out theaters, or you could do the same thing that we did where you had like you rented out rows or like every you everybody rents out two rows for seventy five bucks and you each go in through your own entrance and everything's kind of blocked off. You'd have to just rebuild that. You have to rebuild the theater system in a way that allows you to have a very personalized version of it. But that's that's money too. That's not you know. And they have to figure out how that model works. That's not how the theater model was based. So like again, it's so easy for someone like Chris Nolan to sit back and go, "Well, change your business model." Okay, well, let's go into that. What does it cost for each seat, for each performance, for each thing? Like, let's let really get into the meta of what it would mean to change the business model and put up plexiglass and every other row is sold and this is how much each row and you have to sell every show. Someone has to be rich enough to buy a row. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't even know that that business model works. I don't think there's enough people making enough money to have that luxury in their life. I'll tell you what, you guys keep making, they made popcorn half price. That almost, that almost saved, saved enough money that yeah. I could afford a row. So you can <laughs> I know it used to be like, uh, I, you know, uh, can I speak to your uh, financial uh, agent because I need to work out a loan here? Is there a lease to buy option on the popcorn? Well, I mean, and maybe that's the thing that's, that's always been banned, but maybe is the thing that they have to look at. You have to look at, you almost in, in this, in this world, look at studio owned 
theaters or something where you're not splitting that revenue in the way. Well, they stopped that. That was a monopoly. Remember we talked about that? Oh yeah. I know they had to stop it, but that's the thing. Like, but what, how do you bring it back without that? You can afford to make half the money that you're making. If you're figuring out a way to reduce the number of spots and spaces. So you have to, you have to cut out somebody. There's a middleman in there that has to disappear. Distributor, right? The distributor. And you know, you have to go straight. You like pulp to yarn. You have to go <laughs> director to theater, and maybe it's something like that. But you have to. There's some. There's got to be a way. You have to figure out in 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 a, in a different world or in this world how to give the 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 movie maker more access to people okay, without. So you, go ahead. Yeah. No, that's go ahead. Well, I'm just. I was excited about what you just said because you just nailed it. Um, and we were talking about this even with, uh, I'm sorry, with Adam, was this idea of the uh, backdrop of changing worlds, right? So we talked about video, film to video in the porn business, et cetera, right? So, so you're basically saying the same thing. What happened with uh, Spotify, not Spotify, um, uh, what was that? Uh, crazy- it. Thank you, man. Right? What happened? It's called the Facebook. No, I'm sorry. The Napster. <laughs> so what happened with the Napster? Okay, but that 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 whole thing with the free music that was where the artists got direct access, right, to the, and that's what's happening with pods now. You're seeing a lot of creators and content makers and directors and stars getting direct access to their fans and vice versa through the pods, right, and and through this whole way of entertainment. And I think what happened. Remember when the music business collapsed, right, during Spotify and everything had to change, and Apple came up with iTunes and that changed and that was the new business model. Right. That's that's what's happening. Well, and, 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 you know, one of the things that you don't talk about very much with the Apple iTunes thing is that, you know, you think of that as just like a deal that they're making with uh, Warner Music or uh-huh. whoever, right? Everyone. But, with everyone. But, you know, right. I, I have a buddy who has a band and it's called uh, I'll, I'll, uh, 12, Ga- 12 Gauge Facelift. It's a heavy metal, like hardcore. Oh, I like band. that. Wait, is it, is it death metal? Oh yeah, like Cannibal Corpse. Yeah, like Corpse? that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I love that. What and is it called? Put it up. Twelve gauge facelift. Yeah, twelve uh, gauge facelift. I yeah, like, like that. That's a hardcore name, right? Yeah, that's and, that's some angry working out music right there. Right, and so and he's been doing like it forever. That. And uh, my, one of my best friends growing up. We've been friends since the sixth grade. What's his name? His name's Tony Jensen. Yeah, that sounds and, like a guy who would be the uh, front yeah. guy of 12 Gauge. Well, he, he actually sounds a like guitar, a drummer. He's a guitarist. He's a yeah, guitarist. I was going to say he sounded like a drummer. But uh, <laughs> I Tony's love this. great, and he's got this great band. But like, he could post that on iTunes by himself, right? He's not going to get the promotion that uh, you know Warner's going to do on something else, but he can post that to iTunes. So he has direct access to distribution on the biggest channels without having a label. Yes, and on top of it, what you're actually opening the door to is he can, if he has money, he can be his own label. Mm-hmm. He can go, if he, let's say he's touring before COVID, right? So all the money he was making touring, let's say, like if he, whatever he was making, you know, even a stipend, it would go toward the promote. He can actually pay Apple. Apple offers it, right? Yep. So you can be your own record label and your own artist. And that's what we're going to see happening here in the next five years. Yeah. How does that, how could, I mean, just, you know, well, let's play the theoretical game a okay. little bit. Great. I like this. So how do I get something from there to like, because we can do that. You know, we understand distribution metrics for YouTube and like, I understand with podcasting, I even to in streaming, you know, streaming is going to buy certain things. You could probably get, you know, you know, some Mm -hmm. sort of distribution deal with those guys. How do I get a movie? If I am a filmmaker, uh, what would be a model that you think could work that I could get this on a big screen? 
I'll tell you, well, big screen, you know, that again, we just had that discussion. We don't know what that is anymore. Yeah. Right. But we know everything's going into your home. Yep. Right. So I know this guy, um, you could look it up. He, he did a movie, uh, his name's Lee Kalafi or something. Kalafi. He did this movie like Glassjaw. So it was a fighting movie and he's a nice guy. Right. And I, I didn't see the movie. Right. But, but he got a billboard up oh, on he's, sunset. He's a sexy motherfucker. Yeah. He's very sexy. He's got, he's got like 0% body fat. He's like 0% that I think you're giving him oh, too, too much fat. Percent. He's got yeah. negative percent. <laughs> negative body 2%. Fat. Yeah. And, and by the way, he looks like that in person. You know, like he came to my house, we talked about writing a movie. He wanted me to write a movie. It didn't work out. But that being said, this movie, he went, he made it, and then he put it on Amazon, you know, and it's on Amazon. You know, right. okay, that's not from the movie. <laughs> no, you know, he put up this shot of this Calvin Klein ad that obviously, it would lead to a Calvin, I, I really hope that he did a Calvin Klein ad and these are not just pictures. These, I don't know. I mean, okay, we could stop, but no, actually, I mean, look at this guy. I mean, honestly, if I look like that, I'd have all these pictures too. That's all I, I, I why would you need wouldn't a shirt? shirt? I would, uh, I'm, wouldn't own a shirt. No, I wouldn't. Yeah. I was surprised when he came over to my place, my old place in Hollywood with a shirt. Yeah. I was exactly. like, you're wearing a shirt. What are you doing? What the, what, is it cold out? Well, you know, the, the, the but other- he got it, made it, put it on. You can do that right now is my point. And that's yeah. why I brought up this, this business model. If you can go make it, he, he had credit cards, he, whatever his investors were. Then he went, he made it. He bought a billboard on Sunset, which you can go do. And he went and he put it on Amazon. You make a deal with Amazon. You'll be able to do the same thing with iTunes. And there's going to be no more uh, middleman. Well, you know, and there, the, you know, I know that he gets a lot of shit, um, but I kind of actually like the guy, uh, Kevin Smith. Um, gets a lot of shit for his movies and the types of movies he makes. And he's not, you know, whatever, you know, whatever you think of him. But when he got sick of the studio system and kind of getting fucked around, he decided to go with his movies and just do road shows. He just takes the movie. He makes the movie with his own money or he gets his own backers and investors. And then he takes them on tour. He goes to college campuses and he plays them and he rents out the theater for himself. And it, it might not show very many places. And it took, you know, I had to wait until, uh, you know, I had to wait six months until Jay and Silent Bob reboot came back to the theater, you know, came on streaming, but because um, it wasn't in theaters. But he puts, you know, that and Tusk and and some of these movies that he wants to make the way he wants to make them good, bad or indifferent. He does them himself and he tours them. Right. Well, if you're at that level, you can already do that. You know what I mean? It's, it's you know, he's not pulling a Zach Braff where he's again asking people, what was that line from Family Guy? Like, or he's asking people less fortunate than him to oh. give more to him. Right, right. Something. With Zach Braff. The Kickstarter thing, yeah. That, uh, wish, I wish, wish I was here. Yeah, 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 exactly. Which, again, not a bad movie, uh, but it was a bad movie. Yeah. Um, so, well, you know, um, we, you know, to be fair on that stuff and also, to, you know, talk about how some of that stuff works. Sometimes you're just looking for that funding, but you don't want that control of the, the um, of the, uh, you know, the, the, the studios. That's how we made uh, Anomalisa at Starburns. Yeah, but okay, but that's a lot different. That, yeah. that is a lot. Okay, but, you know, Anomalisa oh, I know. is I'm just saying, niche. Those, those Kickstarter movies. You know, that's another way of but getting that's what I think. Wait, I'm going to interrupt you because that's what I think. Uh, Nancy, you should drink if you're there. That's what I think Kickstarter is for, is for movies like Anomaly, where, you know, fans can have direct access and have some idea into how to get into this business even through this. That's not what I was seeing with Wish You Were Here. Whatever. Yeah, but no, let's I not agree. digress into that. I got, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, why did we bring it up though? We brought it up. Because oh no, we're just bringing it up because I, I, I'm just curious. Like, yeah, like it, it, music, you know, it's, it's like anything else. Like there are certain industries that lend themselves. Podcasting is great. Everybody can own it. It's really simple to do because we have all the equipment in our house. Mm-hmm. You know, we're getting to a place where we have at least, the, you know, people are able to make movies on their phones with some really nice camera lenses, yep. but it's doable. 
but I, I'm just curious, distribution of te- that kind of stuff is just trickier so that we're getting into this because like hypothetically, if we can cut out some portion of the middleman, we have the ability with, with the right writers and thoughts to, to be our own distribution arm of our creative. That's what I'm our saying. Art. It's not that tricky anymore. This dreaming thing has lent itself. And now with COVID, unfortunately, it's, you know, it's curbed, curbed the shit out of theaters. You know, and this is now, it's it's just, it's it's not a matter of, uh, oh, let's change the business model. It's a matter of, you know, how are we going to get these things to the people because the people can't leave. Mm-hmm. Well, there, there's going to be a great, I mean, you're absolutely right. And, and, and here's the thing. I really believe this too. Within the next six months to an, a year, we're going to have somebody that you've never heard of who has been sitting around working on a project do by themselves in their house with their family, with a few friends. That's mm-hmm. going to blow us all away because they did it all on their own with all the time and passion. And honestly, I'm going to repeat this word time to do it their own way. And it's going to come out and we're going to all be blown away because they've done it all on their own. I think it's a great prediction. I can't wait for that to come out so, because we're going to have a, we're going to have a filmmaker we've never seen before. Did it all with cell phones and learned how to edit on the fly. And, and Robert Rodriguez, the whole goddamn thing. Yeah. Um, you're absolutely right, Jason. You know what? I, I, great Nostradamus right there. Yeah. When it comes out, we're going to go back to this. We'll go back well, to Why did we all just spend our time doing what, what uh, <laughs> I'm going to just call him Rodriguez Jr. did? Yeah, because he could, you know, he or she, you know, non-binary uh, can learn uh, something right now and do something. And all of a sudden you're like, whoa, I never thought of it in that way. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So, um, we any other news or is that? No, no. We there. I mean, it's not. I know. We're I all waiting on Nevada. We're all waiting on Nevada. So, <laughs> is that a thing? Is that what's going on? Has the president not been decided yet? No, nope, not not decided yet. So okay. we're just waiting on Nevada. All right. Well, you know, a prayer yep. to all. Yeah, just say it right out there. We're all doing the best we can with what we got. Yep. Just just treat everyone with love. Yeah, that's right. That's all. Okay. So, did you watch um, uh, Truth Seekers? Oh yeah, I watched the first three episodes. I'm still I'm I'm taking it slow because I really want to enjoy this. I'm trying a new thing, but this is a great show. As if you haven't started watching Truth Seekers yet, it's great. It's on it's on Amazon Prime. Yep. This is uh Simon Pegg is, and Nick Frost, but this is starring Nick Frost. Simon Pegg plays a much smaller role in this. It's just kind of the he's really funny the guy, but he's really funny. And this is just a this is a ghost hunter spoof that is so funny. I mean, but it's also poignant. I, I, I've watched, I ingested it in that night. The night I told you to watch it, uh, Friday, was it? Yep. I was done Friday. I was like, it went so fast and I was like, oh, it's over already. And I knew it. I couldn't delay the joy. I had to have it immediately. And I, I mean, the end of the pilot, first of all, are we going to do a spoiler here for this? No, let's not spoil it, but let's just let's okay. talk about what this is. Right. The, the, I mean, there's a few things that you don't have to worry about spoiling. Ghosts are real. <laughs> These guys are, are, are tech. They're basically... Uh, internet installers mm-hmm. um and um they're they're internet installers and they um happen upon a a, a haunting and they also ha- happen upon this weird radio that, and these are these are real things that are out there they're these these radio signals where there's just like a repeating number chain or something else and and so they have this thing and and some these all th- all these three things kind of get connected and they uh they find themselves in in the middle of a fairly large uh haunting and, it, it, you know, and what they do that's clever is, you know, each episode is they're getting sent to these different places that are having Wi-Fi problems. And each of the Wi-Fi problems are because of a haunting. 
Mm-hmm. And there's a twist with his new partner, and I love the acting from everybody. And and the greatest thing about all of Simon Pegg thing and and Nick Frost as well, it's you know it's not movie stars, it's not TV stars. It's just funny, great acting. All the people fit perfectly, and then you get Malcolm McDowell. Oh yeah, Malcolm McDowell is in this show, and you've never seen Malcolm McDowell like this ever. I can't think of a movie or TV show, anything where I've seen him play this type of person. He is hilarious. Mm-hmm. He plays this old, the the dad of Nick Frost. Yes, yeah, so he's a curmudgeon, play, but he's vulnerable. He's a, And he's also weird. And in <laughs> so a way, Malcolm McDowell inspires fear in me. He's mm. odd as far as I'm concerned, right? Like he's just, and I know he didn't play Zod, but I, he just, he's like, Clockwork and, Orange, man. Yeah, he is scary. He's a, he's intense. And in this movie, he's still intense, but he's weird and he's so funny. And like, he just plays, he's, this looks like he's having, having a blast. Yes. And, and he works so well as the guy. And, and you think it's the, the father. It's very interesting how they keep peeling back all the things that happen and how they all end up interconnected. Though they have this interesting procedural feel where, you know, you think they're solving this haunting, you know, every kind of episode. But it also, every episode starts with a history mm-hmm. lesson of the thing that happened in the past of some haunting or some murder or whatever. Right. You know, it's it. What I, I liked about it, at least in the first three that I watched, is mm-hmm. the the first four minutes are actually kind of legitimately scary or serious, or yeah. the tone is so different from the rest of the show. But it really sets the scene in a really cool way. Where you watch this and go, hmm. Like when I watched the first episode, I was like, is this going to be like dark and stuff? And then they're like, oh no, it's not. <laughs> right, but it's just dark enough. Right. Like the end of the pilot with the dog is like, it's almost like what. I thought that would hit you, by the way, mm-hmm. the end of the pilot. Oh, yeah, it did. With the dog. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, that's not giving anything away. Try, are, you trying to, are you trying to Barbara Walters me, motherfucker? I, 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 I just get a tear. <laughs> you know, okay, so watch Truth Seekers. I rec- I, we both obviously recommend it very highly, and uh, we're open to hear anything you have to say about it. I, I wanted to take a, a moment. Did you have it, something? I'm take a I, did you see the uh, uh, John Mulaney? Oh, I did watch the John Mulaney Saturday Night Live. Okay, so I'm a huge John Mulaney fan. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how you do a monologue. That is how you nail... Everyone wants to talk about controversy and this and that. If everybody just did a monologue like John Mulaney and just broke jokes and did funny stuff, like, that's edgy. Every And by the way, the show was better with him on it. Yeah. Well, Mulaney, you know, there's a couple things about that. One, this has actually been a season where... Um, so far, there have been three strong openers, right? Like Mulaney did a great job. I thought uh, I thought that uh, Rock did okay with his opening, and Bill Burr fucking nailed it. As far yeah. as I'm concerned, I think they've brought in a lot of stand-ups this season so far. Um, so I think in general, like that. But what Mulaney brought that's different is Mulaney understands the audience of Saturday Night Live. He's written for it. He's written some of the weirdest things. And he just does, he he makes it fun. He knows how to have fun within his limitations. And even the stuff that's not that good is fucking funny. But yeah, I mean, I really felt, I felt, I, I thought Bill Burr nailed it, but I thought Mulaney's monologue was the best of the season. And I thought his hosting, his show was the best Mm-hmm. Of the season so far. So far, I, I mean, by far, I wouldn't say that there's any doubt. I think it. I think his was great. Um, I did. I still was a big fan of uh, Burr's. I thought overall Burr's a much better actor than anybody gives him credit for. Um, he should. Oh, actually, I love him as an actor. I agree with you. Um, and he doesn't get enough credit in there. Um, you know, every time you want to offer Rock a role, give it to 
give it to Burr. And <laughs> By the way, I think you'd be happier. <laughs> Everybody. Say, happy. Bill Burr just needs one punch drunk love. Yeah. Like someone, because he's that good. And it was not that crappy movie. Better than King of New Jersey or whatever the fuck that was. That right? movie. Right. Exactly. The, the only good thing about that movie was everyone went, oh, Bill Burr's really good actor. Right. Like he but, held that whole movie on his own. But, you know, like, but then you look at Mulaney, right? Mm -hmm. So Mulaney does, you know, that first birds, that first birds uh, scene, you know, at, at, at the end of the day, not super funny and they're all, but they're kind of doing it. But Mulaney, Mulaney is funny. great. But Mulaney is great at calling out the weirdness of the movie in general and really kind of like building up this like absurdity in a way that like he's playing the straight man, but he's also the absurd at the same time, which was yep. freaking hilarious. And, you know, that takes a certain type of, you know, voice, you know, that, that yep. dumb fucking that. Okay. It was dumb. I don't care what anybody says. It was dumb, but it just cracked me up. The, the, the headless horseman episode. Oh, it was, I, I was laughing my ass off. I was dying. Dying. That's what I'm talking about. Just do stuff like that. Like, wait, did you ask him? <laughs> did you ask him? Does <laughs> yeah, he do have it? You ever? Have you ever? Yeah, what, have you ever? What, what I mean, I think Everybody I knew immediately and said, so have you ever? It's like, yeah, well, yeah, I get this. I get this joke. I know this, these beats. This is what nine-year-olds like to laugh at, and I am nine years old. And on that note, we will, uh, so glad to be back. Thank you for having us back. We'll see you on the next episode. Stay safe, stay sane, stay strong. Jason Smith. Dorfman, I love you, everybody. Go Nevada. <laughs> All right.